This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss housing as healthcare or how housing is being integrated with healthcare delivery. With me to discuss the topic is the National Center for Healthy Housing's Rebecca Morley. Uh, welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for your time. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Great. Since we're approaching uh, the time of the year when many people go home for the holidays, I thought it appropriate we talk about the relationship between housing and, again, health care. The reciprocal relationship between housing and health status is or ought to be obvious. John Lozier, the executive director of the National Health Care Council for the Homeless, phrased it this way, and I quote, Housing improves health for the same reasons that homelessness is deleterious. A clean, dry, secure environment is fundamental to personal hygiene, uh, medication storage, and protection from the elements. Private space allows for the establishment of stable personal relationships. A stable residence facilitates effective interaction with others, including treatment, providers, and social support systems, and increases adherence to treatment plans, including regular meals and keeping appointments. Housing may reduce anxiety and consequently reduce stress-related illnesses. In these ways, housing both promotes health and prevents the onset of new illnesses. Again, with me to discuss integrating housing and health care is Rebecca Morley. Ms. Morley's bio is, as always, posted on the podcast website. So with that, Rebecca, as background introduction, let me begin by asking you briefly to describe the work of your organization, the National Center for Healthy Housing. We've been around for about 20 years now. We were started to find uh, solutions to the problem of childhood lead poisoning. Um, In the early 90s, there were a significant number of lawsuits against the affordable housing industry for children that were being lead poisoned in these homes. And so the industry was trying to figure out what can we do that's practical and affordable and will uh, prevent these issues. So for the first decade of our existence, we focused on coming up with those strategies. And we've seen about an 80% decline in the number of children with lead poisoning over those two decades. Um, And then about 2000, we expanded our mission to focus on other hazards in the home, really coming full circle back to some uh, of the work in the early 20th century that was focused on um, the issues that you just discussed, um, healthy, sanitary housing. Um, We found that it made no sense to go in and focus on, for instance, lead paint hazards when there might be fire hazards or electric hazards or mold or other things. And so while in the early part of the 20th century, there was a lot of focus on housing as a vaccine for um, infectious disease, I think what we found now uh, in in this century, in the 21st century, is that, in fact, um, chronic disease like asthma, um, even obesity and diabetes, and then cancer, um, chemicals in the home environment, are things that we can curb through housing strategies, housing interventions. And so we're taking a harder look at uh, what the research shows us we can accomplish in that way. Okay, thank you. Let me follow by asking, what's the magnitude of the problem? And in public health circles, you see the phrase frequently, the housing famine. So my question is, how prevalent is this issue of inadequate or substandard housing? 
Well, there's a lot of different components of housing as it relates to health. You've got the quality issue, which we know there are about 6.3 million units that are considered substandard, according to the American Housing Survey. This number has been relatively unchanged uh, for at least two decades. So the early American Housing Survey had about 6.3 million units, and the last one that came out in 2011 said about the same. So it's a very frustrating statistic that we don't seem to be able to move the mark on. Um, Despite HHS having a Healthy People 2020 goal that calls for reducing substandard housing conditions by 52%. So that's one side of the coin, just the quality issue. And then there's affordability, and we know that um, people are paying way too much of their um, income on housing. And as a result of that, uh, there are other unmet needs, whether it be energy or food um, or even health care that they can't pay for because of the um, amount of money being spent on rent. So that's just one problem. the lack of affordable housing, you know, in its worst form is homelessness, which uh, afflicts about 1.5 million people nationwide. And then we have, of course, when when homes are unaffordable, um, housing is, is, is unstable for families. So you see a lot of mobility of families. And this has its own challenges, especially for um, families with children, um, impact on school, um, impact on behavior, impact on health and access to health care. Um, so stability, housing instability is a significant public health problem as well. So you've got quality and affordability. And then you've got other issues that are actually coming into play, the location of housing, whether or not the uh, neighborhoods in which you live uh, have sufficient fresh food, have access to green space, have access to services, or whether those places have too many alcohol outlets, which we know are linked linked to uh, substance abuse, whether they have uh, incomplete streets making it difficult to walk, which we know makes it uh, more challenging for people to get the right amount of physical activity. So location, quality, affordability, those are three pathways. And the fourth pathway that we often talk about is kind of the social and demographic characteristics of neighborhoods. Are they uh, racially or economically segregated, um, which has an impact on health? So um, it's through those four pathways that I think healthcare professionals and providers, payers, can start to look at how they might be able to um, achieve their business goals and their mission goals. Great, great. Thank you. So let's go to healthcare. What's what's your understanding of the extent to which the healthcare industry recognizes and moreover addresses the problem, particularly when it's well known housing is a key social determinant of health? I think it's uh there are very diverse uh opinions on this right now and there are very diverse approaches. I would say that this idea of housing as a vaccine has not transcended the entire industry, that there are a few progressive players. Uh, we know that Kaiser California, for instance, is getting engaged in uh, the social determinants of health, uh, Trinity Healthcare System, some med state Medicaid plans, um, some state governments. But uh, by and large, this is still, um, I think, uh, a theory, this idea of investing in housing as a vehicle for improving health and, and less practiced, um, although I think it is the way of the future and, um, you know, partly because the Affordable Care Act really putting pressure on the healthcare world to look outside the healthcare system. Um, you know, still we, we rank first in our healthcare spending in, in the world, but 25th in our spending on social services. So, if we believe truly that the majority of our health is driven by things outside the healthcare system, the dollars are not aligned with that way of thinking. Yes, you mentioned uh, Medicaid, and Medicaid does not allow for states to spend money on actually developing uh, housing. What's your understanding? 
relative to states that are doing anything innovative, whether it relates to waivers, state waivers, or demonstrations? I mean, what's being done currently, or what's the thinking around how Medicaid can address the issue? Well, New York State and Massachusetts are both examples of um, some places that have been more progressive on this front. And, and as you point out, um, in the case of New York State, they had proposed to pay for supportive housing as part of their Medicaid redesign. And as I understand it, CMS rejected this idea, but that the state decided to go ahead with it anyway because they thought it was good evidence-based policy and they put their own resources um, behind it. So I think we'll begin to see the results of that uh, quote-unquote experiment in New York State, and I think they'll show us what we all believe is the case, which is when you invest in supportive housing, you will bring down health care costs for those that are um, high utilizers. Um, homeless uh, persons are um, more likely to be high utilizers. They have more catastrophic health episodes. They um, have more significant and more complex health care issues. So uh, it just makes sense that if you stabilize their housing situation and link them up with supportive services, that you're going to reduce their amount of uh, emergency room visits. And of course, greatly higher mortality rates amongst the homeless compared to the general population, which is really, don't need more evidence than that, I guess. Mm -hmm. Let let me ask, um, you have a recent volume out uh, that you co-edited, maybe opportune here to introduce what the volume healthy and safe homes attempts to accomplish. Well, that that book was intended. Uh, we uh, was published by APHA and uh, co-edited with a couple of others. Angela Mikolai, um, fr- uh previously with Safe Kids, now with the uh, Children's National Medical Center, and uh, Karen Mack, who's with the Centers for Disease Control. The purpose of that book was really actually just to create a, a transdisciplinary dialogue and to enable housing people to get public health and public health people to get housing. Um, and we also, when we think of housing, we think of it broadly. So that means people doing energy efficient work or um, people doing code enforcement. So anyone that touches a home, whether you're doing it for health or whether you're doing it for housing, should ideally have a common language, and that was what that book set forth to do. Okay. Let me go back to ask you the problem with the healthcare industry being slow to recognize this issue, as you say, as a vaccine. Uh, Leaving aside the fact that uh, there isn't a reimbursement, at least uh, not in social insurance, uh, nor Medicare, uh, in addition to Medicaid, well, what explains this? I mean, again, the obvious connection is is such that it, it seems hard to deny. Yeah, I think that would be, that's a great question for CMS is to find <laughs> out what, what really does have them to uh, feel uncomfortable about making these investments. It could be that it's just different. It could be that they don't um, have uh, right now a sense of, uh, who would be providing the service, their qualifications, um, that they worry about potential fraud. So those are understandable when you're managing public monies. Um, but we've we've seen so many great demonstrations of this that I think we can answer those questions. And I think states should be the breeding ground for um, for actually showing that this works and that uh, it's a good use of public money, um, pay now or pay later, essentially. We just finished a survey, actually, of states to find out the extent to which they're reimbursing for home visits for asthma, uh, children with asthma, or home visits for kids um, who have had lead poisoning. And let me give you the case of lead, for instance. Um, Even though the EPSDT requirements under Medicaid require that children receive appropriate follow-up for lead poisoning, only 18 of the 50 states reported having such a benefit on the books. 
So um, even where Medicaid has insisted that a particular benefit be covered, the states haven't uh, uniformly implemented that. So I think in addition to some of these new innovations and demonstrations, we also need to go back to where we have existing authority and requirements and making sure that we have good compliance at the state, state level and good implementation. Okay, thank you. Your organization runs a, a center, I believe, the National Healthy Homes Training Center. Can you tell me what that is attempting to accomplish? Yeah. So again, as we go back and talk about CMS and maybe part of their concern is who is the workforce that's going to provide the services that we um, think should be paid for out of health care funds. Um, the training center is uh, in- intended to train, qualify, credential uh, public health, environmental health, and housing practitioners in this world of healthy housing. So for instance, we have um, courses for nurses on conducting a home visit. Um, for healthy housing hazards to identify fire uh, safety hazards, um, asthma triggers, uh, environmental health hazards like lead, radon, etc. So that course, um, you can get a CNEs for taking it. It's an online course. It's free. Um, that was developed through the training center with funding from HUD, CDC, and EPA. Uh, we also have a course for community health workers. Um, and as you know, the Affordable Care Act provides for more flexibility to use CHWs as long as they are under the supervision of a licensed provider, healthcare provider. So um, I think all of these things are coming together. You've got the training and the capacity building for the people on the ground providing the services. You've got the potential for reimbursement through Medicaid. And you've got this knowledge now, this knowledge base that things that we do besides um, sick care, um, true health care, can be incredibly cost-effective. Let's go further with that, and and we did talk um, a couple months ago about what opportunities there might be in this reform type of reimbursement, pay for value. Mm-hmm. So there are organizations under the Affordable Care Act called Accountable Care Organizations, whereby they're paid on uh, or reimbursed uh, based on meeting quality measures and reducing costs. So now that the healthcare industry is moving more towards pay for value or outcomes versus just fee for service. What opportunities do you see there? Well, I think for the first time, housing people can have a conversation with uh, ACOs, um, these new entities, uh, along business lines. So the housing folks can say, these are the services that we provide, and this is the uh, savings that we believe you can realize if our services are provided to your clients. And then they can talk about what kind of business relationship they want to be in. Um, are they a vendor, for instance, as a, of an ACO? I'll take, for example, Rebuilding Together, which is a group that we've worked together with on something called the Healthy Housing Challenge. Rebuilding Together goes into the homes of low-income families, um, typically owner-occupants, and they do minor repairs. Um, some of these might be modifications, for instance, for someone that has a disability or someone that is um, an older adult. But imagine that you could do these modifications and uh, reduce the readmissions or the amount of unplanned uh, doctor visits for an individual. So I think that uh, now is the time for these conversations to be happening between housing and healthcare about how we could achieve our both mission and business goals. So you would say incentives are increasingly better aligned in some? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. I have to go back to this healthy people mention you made uh, a few minutes ago. The the goal of reducing uh, this issue or problem by 50 plus percent. Mm -hmm. What's your understanding of how the federal government believes it's going to meet this goal? 
Well, that's that's the real gap from what I can see is that there's been a metric, a performance challenge set, reducing substandard housing by 52%. And this is being set by HHS, the Health and Human Services. But the HHS, as you know, doesn't have a lot of control over our housing conditions. And so to my knowledge, um, and I, I think I have um, a pretty good sense of what's out there, no strategy has been put forth for how to eradicate substandard housing in a you know the t- ten year time frame that healthy people twenty twenty sets forth so um we, there are um strategies out there like the um strategy for healthy housing that came out of HUD but uh, what I don't see is a clear strategy to get us from point a where we are today six point three million units to a reduction by fifty two percent which is uh, pretty significant uh by twenty twenty and I think that that becomes a question for this administration and for the next administration, which is if we really want to achieve that goal, what what do we have to do differently? Okay. And maybe my last question, your organization places a particular emphasis on children, and you did mention lead poisoning and asthma. Uh, what else might you say relative to your focus on uh, healthy housing for children? Well, injuries in the home are one of the top killers of kids under five. So I would say the top three for us are uh, childhood lead poisoning because that's a legacy issue for us and it's still very prominent today, especially in certain zip codes. And asthma, um, very high cost um, problem, uh, disproportionately impacts low-income communities of color. And then third, unintentional injuries. And in addition to kids, which we um, obviously care deeply about and are committed to, we've expanded our mission to focus more recently on older adults as well, vulnerable older adults, uh, because of the baby boomer population and the mismatch between the type of housing we have out there and their needs. Uh, we think that this is going to be, we can apply the lessons learned from our work on housing for kids uh, to housing for older adults. Okay, thank you. Uh, maybe finally, uh, my question to close would be, Ideally, what would you suggest would be first steps for whether it's an ACO or it's a hospital integrated network or even further for a Kaiser thoroughly integrated network? What would be some first steps for the healthcare world to think about or try to adopt to begin to address this issue? Well, I think starting a dialogue with our housing providers in the area is a very important first step. Um, getting in the same room, talking about their uh, their worst-case housing uh, issues and their worst-case health care issues. So what are the top health care priorities um, that the payer or the hospital has? And then um, what are, what's going on in the, in the housing world? Are they having a loss of affordable housing? Do they have uh, problems with blight? Do they have problems with the homeless population? Um, so getting them talking about their problems and figuring out ways to align their agendas is, is the first strategy, in my view, and data sharing, um, because to the extent that uh, we probably know the addresses of the places that are the biggest concern um, at, at a very fine, you know, in a fine grade level, we also know the population, the, the individuals who are um, accounting for the largest health care costs. So doing some data matching, um, of course, being careful around privacy issues. Um, I think those two first steps will be very elucidating for the, the two groups to see that they're serving the same population and that through complementary work, they can make a bigger impact. Maybe one of the first questions a primary care provider might ask a patient first time is, can you explain your current housing circumstances? Exactly. Okay. Okay, Rebecca, we're at our, our time boundary, so this is a great conversation. Genuinely very appreciative, so thank you for your time. Thank you, David.
You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.